You're listening to Comedy Central. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to The Daily Social Distancing Show. I'm Trevor Noah. Today is Friday, the 23rd of October. So if you live in Utah, that means you're probably white. It also means today is the last day that you can register to vote. And you better do it, people, because if you don't register, Mitt Romney is gonna personally come to your house and politely remind you to do it. Don't let it come to that. Go to votevotevote.com and find out how. Anyway, on tonight's show, Joe Biden and Donald Trump face off for the last time. We talk to Rashida Jones about her new movie and the cat picture that's too big for the internet. So let's do this, people. Welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. From Trevor's couch in New York City to your couch somewhere in the world, this is the Daily Social Distancing Show with Trevor Noah. Ears edition. Let's kick things off with the story that everyone is talking about. Mitch McConnell's hands. This shit was terrifying. What the hell happened? You see his hand? Guy looks like he was thumb wrestling a raccoon. What the, what's going on with that color? It looks like he was thinking about doing blackface, but then just decided to start slowly. One hand at a time, They didn't say anything about black hand, Now, McConnell says everything is fine and he has no medical condition to be worried about. So that, that shit's just like normal, I guess. And I mean, I'm glad that he's fine, but I guess that means that his hands just naturally look like a banana that fell under the fridge two months ago. Yeah, it's, it's really deli- It actually makes it sweeter. Taste it, man. But anyway, let's get to the real story. Last night was the second and final presidential debate of all time, no, of this election. And Donald Trump's last presidential debate ever until 2024. Because no matter what happens, we all know he's running again, people. He's not going anywhere. So. Let's take a look at the final debates in our ongoing coverage of Votegasm 2020. Last night, Joe Biden and Donald Trump debated for the final time. And I'm not saying that this was the most sophisticated debate in history, but one thing everyone agreed upon is that compared to the last time, at least this was a more presidential debate than a WWE match. This was a decidedly different debate, much calmer, far fewer interruptions. The debate last night, calmer tone than the first one. But This was a far more civil affair than their disastrous first debate. It was a far less contentious affair than that first debate. We went from Cleveland chaos to Nashville nice. That's right. This debate actually felt like a debate. And who knows why it was so much better? I mean, maybe it was because the candidates knew their microphones could be muted, or maybe because Trump was better behaved so he could appeal to undecided voters. Or maybe it was just the pre-debate smoke sesh. You never know, people were more chilled. Whatever the case, with fewer distractions than last time, the candidates could actually give us their visions for America. On healthcare, Joe Biden wants to expand Obamacare, while Donald Trump will have his plan in the next two weeks, which is what he's been saying for the last five years. On fracking, Trump wants to keep it, while Joe Biden wants to keep it and get rid of it. On coronavirus, Biden thinks we have a tough road ahead, while Trump wants to reopen the White House jacuzzi. And on crime, Joe Biden's priority is to get drug offenders out of prison, while Donald Trump's priority is to keep himself out of prison. Now, to be clear, just because Donald Trump was less shouty, that doesn't mean that he wasn't still Donald Trump. 
I mean, you can put a silencer on a gun, but it's still gonna hurt. For instance, one of the most contentious topics last night was immigration. There was a big story this week that of those 5,500 migrant children who were separated from their families at the border, 545 still have not been returned because the government has lost track of their parents. And while Joe Biden was outraged by this news, Trump managed to look on the bright side. Let's talk about what we're talking about. What happened? Parents were ripped, their kids were ripped from their arms and separated. And now they cannot find over 500 sets of those parents and those kids are alone. Nowhere to go, nowhere to go. It's criminal. It's criminal. Let me ask Kristen, you about I will it. say this. They went down. We brought reporters, everything. They are so well taken care of. They're in facilities that were so clean. Damn. Are you kidding me? Did this motherfucker just give a Yelp review for his child prison camps? I will say this. You can see why Donald Trump is a salesman. Because this guy can spin anything that he did wrong into something positive. Donald, did you just take a dump on my rug? What I actually did was give you a really valuable conversation starter. If you want, I'll autograph it for you. What's crazy to me is how screwed up Trump's priorities are. This dude has a meltdown when his tweets get hidden, but when his administration is orphaning kids, he's like, whoa, dude, take a chill pill. They get basic cable, things aren't that bad. Now, Trump defended the zero tolerance policy that led to family separations, by saying that under Biden and Obama, migrants were just set loose. And when Biden tried to argue that most immigrants who were released still showed up for their mandated court dates, Donald Trump was pretty skeptical about that claim. If in fact you had a family came across and they were arrested, they in fact were given a date to show up for their hearing, they were released. And guess what? They showed up for a hearing. When you say they come back, they don't come back, Joe. They never come back. Only the really, I hate to say this, but those with the lowest IQ, they might come back. Okay, President Trump, let's give us- And folks, if I know anything, it's people with low IQs. I see one every morning when I'm brushing my teeth. He does the same thing as me. I'm brushing, he's brushing. Why is he brushing at the same time? I tell him to stop. He says stop. How is he in my house? Just to be clear, what Trump is saying is that he knows immigrants are supposed to come back for hearings, but that only the stupidest people actually do it. And aside from the fact that he's totally wrong, it's amazing how Donald Trump always thinks that following the law is only for stupid people. You know, sometimes Trump seems less like a president and more like a kid playing Grand Theft Auto because that's the one place where if you're following the rules, then you're definitely not doing it right. Dude, why are you stopping at the traffic light? You're supposed to mow over the pedestrians. That's the point of the game. Not to mention, this is setting such a bad example for immigrants. Like, if I was an immigrant with an upcoming court date in America, now I'd be like, well, now I can't show up. The president will think I'm an idiot. But the final big topic at last night's debate was racial equality and the Black Lives Matter movement. And once again, Trump was certain This was his time to shine. Nobody has done more for the black community than Donald Trump. And if you look, with the exception of Abraham Lincoln, possible exception, but the exception of Abraham Lincoln, nobody has done what I've done. I think I have great relationships with all people. I am the least racist person in this room. I am the least 
racist person. I can't even see the audience because it's so dark. But I don't care who's in the audience. I'm the least racist person in this room. Man, <laughs> sometimes you got to love Trump. He just threw the entire audience under the bus to make himself look good. You realize his own wife was in that room, but Trump is like, Melania, Melania's way more racist than me. She calls our housekeeper Consuela, and she says, but that's her name. And I'm like, stop making excuses, you racist. Although, to be fair to Trump, guys, he has spent a lot of time with Stephen Miller, Steve Bannon, Jeff Sessions, and the rest of the dudes. So, I mean, usually, he probably is the least racist person in a room. Oh, and by the way, <laughs> I love how he always says that he's done the most for black people, with the possible exception of Abraham Lincoln. The possible exception. Like, yeah, Lincoln freed the slaves, but Trump gave Omarosa, like, three jobs. Three jobs. Coming up, let's get the debate taste out of our mouths with some fun stories that you might have missed. And Rashida Jones is still joining us on the show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Daily Social Distancing Show. Guys, let's be honest. It's been another stressful day for everybody. What, with the election coming up, the pandemic getting worse, and whatever's going on with Rudy Giuliani. Either way, we could use as much good news these days as we can get. Especially fun news involving animals. So let's find some of that good news in our ongoing segment, Ray of Sunshine, Animal Edition. We begin our sunshine with puppies. The most popular thing to adopt in 2020 besides a drinking habit. One of the great things about dogs is that every breed looks different. Chihuahuas look like rats that got swole. Corgis look like someone cast a spell on a loaf of bread to make it come alive. And Pomeranians, they, they look like something that got clogged in your drain. But one puppy born earlier this month looks more unusual than most. And in Italy, a rare puppy is born with green fur. Take a look here. A farmer welcomed the litter of five dogs earlier in the month and could not believe his eyes when he saw one of the pups was, in fact, green. The fur was white for the other ones, like their mixed-breed mom. The green fur is believed to happen when pale puppies come in contact with a green pigment in their mom's womb. The owner chose a fitting name for the pup. He decided to call it Pistachio. Oh my God, guys, I have never seen anything this tiny, green, and cute in my grandbaby Yoda. It's not always about you. Oh. I mean, a green puppy? That's adorable. That is just adorable. I mean, unless you're that puppy's father. You know, the whole womb story sounds very scientific, but we all know that that puppy's mom is just covering up an affair she probably had with a famous frog. Also, let's be honest, this puppy's gonna have to deal with some prejudice in his life especially when it tries to date one of the white puppies, because those parents are gonna be like, look, we just think Pistachio might be happier dating one of his own kind, like a leprechaun or a, or a shamrock shake. But let's move on from newborn puppies to one very old cat. And archeologists have discovered a giant 2000 year old figure of a cat carved into a hillside in Southern Peru. They found the 121 foot long cat using a drone inside a UN World Heritage Site. Officials say that the cat figure was barely visible when it was first discovered since it was on a slope and disappearing due to erosion. The carving has since been cleaned to make it more visible. Wait, wait, wait. 
There was a giant cat carved into the hillside for 2,000 years and we just discovered it now? How is that possible? Well, was it hiding behind a drawing of a sofa? I mean, I'm not trying to put anybody down, but whichever archeologist found this thing had a very easy day of work. Think about it, Indiana Jones is inside tombs. There's death traps triangulating sunlight with ancient amulets. Meanwhile, this dude is just like, hey, look, it's a big cat. I'm an archeologist. It's also funny how even 2000 years ago, people loved sharing cat pictures. Cause I mean, what this hill basically is, is ancient Peruvian Facebook. I'm sure if the archeologists look further down, they're gonna start finding QAnon conspiracy theories. Uh, apparently Joe Biden built the Incan pyramids. But please don't get me wrong, I'm not hating. That is an impressive work of art. And it just goes to show you that even 2000 years ago, people had a hard time drawing the legs. They should be so easy, but they're not. You think you got them and then you get there and you're like, God, these are not legs. Uh, I hope my parents love me because they're just gonna have to take this picture the way I drew it. And finally, some good news from the world of insects, our tiny neighbors that eat us when we're dead. They may not be as cute as kittens or as puppies or anything really, but bugs can still be super impressive. And the Associated Press says scientists are studying a certain kind of beetle's super tough shell to learn about designing stronger planes and buildings. Researchers say that the shell on what's called the diabolical ironclad beetle can't be crushed. They say that the one inch beetle found in Southern California's woodlands withstood compression about 39,000 times its weight. It even survived being run over by a car. The study is part of a project funded by the US Air Force. Wow, guys, that's the wonder of nature. No matter how much you've seen, it always finds new ways to terrify you. I mean, a diabolical ironclad beetle? That is the most badass name I have ever heard for a beetle. Sounds like something Godzilla gets his ass beat by. And I love how scientists can change your whole vibe just by switching up the name. You are going to be the diabolical ironclad beetle. Yes, yes, yes. And you will be the dung beetle. Like shit, like you're a beetle of shit. That's your, that's your vibe. And it's pretty wild that they said the diabolical ironclad beetle cannot be crushed. Although clearly that's because it's never been dumped by Stephanie. <laughs> okay, why didn't she go? <laughs> I will admit though, when I first saw the story, I thought, damn, so they just ran that beetle over with a car? Poor beetle. Scientists can just get away with anything as long as they say it's for an experiment. I'm gonna become a scientist just in case I ever get into a driving accident. Sir, did you run over that person's leg with your car? No, officer, I was conducting an experiment, all right? And it worked. The car makes people go, ow, it's called science. All right, we have to take a quick break, but don't go away because when we come back, I'll be talking to one of the founding members of the Black Lives Matter movement, and then the one and only Rashida Jones is joining us on the show. Stick around. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. So earlier today, I spoke with Alicia Gaza, an organizer and co-creator of Black Lives Matter. We talked BLM and about her new book on building transformative movements that can change the world. Alicia Gaza, welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Some may not know your name, some may not even know your face, but almost everyone in America and around the world knows your work because you are one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter. Seven years ago, George Zimmerman was acquitted for the killing of Trayvon Martin, and that sparked in you 
a movement and an idea that has really sparked now a movement around the world. Take me through why the George Zimmerman case was the catalyst that changed how Alicia saw politics in her life and in the world. Well, you know, I've been organizing for a long time now. It's been almost 20 years. And so I'm no stranger to police violence or police abuse. I mean, in my community, Oscar Grant was murdered by a police officer uh, just a few blocks from my home. Uh, and, And then, of course, in addition to that, through my organizing work in Bayview Hunters Point in San Francisco, there was a young man named Kenneth Harding who was murdered in broad daylight by police for evading a $2 fare. So that's not the surprising part. But this one really struck me because George Zimmerman was not a police officer. He was a vigilante who decided that 17-year-old Trayvon Martin, who had gone to the liquor store for snacks during a break in a football game, didn't belong in the neighborhood that he lived in. And that hit me in my gut. I have a brother who's eight years younger than me. He's six feet tall. He's growing up in a community that's not unlike Sanford, Florida. He's the sweetest kid in the world. He's never even been in a fight. But to think that someone like him could be walking down the street and be considered a threat just because of the way he looks really just enrages me. Lots of people get involved because they are angry or upset or they're hurt. But there's something that transforms in us when we become a part of a movement that transforms it into love. We do this work because we love ourselves and our communities so much that we believe that we deserve better, and we certainly do. It feels like there's a recurring theme that goes beyond the police in America. Because the police are an issue, yes. I mean, but that's an issue that, strangely enough, is, is experienced across the globe, whether it's in South Africa or Nigeria or even in the UK. There is, there is a common thread in how police police people of a certain standing in society. What do you think that tells us about how Americans or how law enforcement or how society views a black life? Well, I think very simply, it means that black lives don't matter. Black lives are considered to be valuable in some contexts, right? Like entertainment or culture. But when it comes to black people being able to access the things that we need to live well, There are several barriers actually that are involved in keeping us from those things. And a lot of it has to do with white supremacy. You know, Trevor, before I got on with you tonight, uh, I was visited at my home by the FBI. Apparently somebody was recently arrested on a weapons charge who was affiliated with white nationalist groups. And they had my name alongside a host of other activist names on a list. This is because, of course, we push so hard to make sure that black people are treated just like everybody else. We're not wow. acting, we're not organizing for a world in which black people are more powerful than anybody else. It's literally about equalizing the playing field. And so much of that has to do with power. Movements are made to put more power into the hands of more people. But when you activate movements, it is threatening to the current status quo. There are people in this country and around the world who do not want to see power distributed in this way. And that's why we fight. And this movement is so powerful because there are so many of us and it cannot be stopped. This is what makes it so threatening to the powers that be. Last night during the presidential debates, we saw that this president used our movement as a political football. What's exciting, though, this time around is that we have a little more time and experience under our belts. And actually, I talk about the the lie that he tried to 
uh, propagate last night in the book. I talk about this incident where there were protesters who were chanting pigs in a blanket, fry them like bacon, and the media and the president immediately moved to try to attach it to Black Lives Matter. It's a strategy to distract, to discredit, and delegitimize something that has won hearts and minds around the world. Your book takes a fascinating look at power. I mean, the, the title, The Purpose of Power, really digs into it. You have tangible things that you talk about in the book that, yes, predominantly black people need, but funny enough, and I, I'm, I'm sure you've seen this, there are many poor white communities in America who've gone, actually, we have those same issues and we need to be fighting with Black Lives Matter for these causes. Talk me through some of the concrete steps that you think need to be taken to improve the lives of all Americans, especially people who are black. I'm really proud of this movement. And one of the reasons that my book is not a BLM book is because our story is still being written. I'm so proud of the movement for Black Lives, which has introduced the BREATHE Act, which I consider to be our generation's version of the Civil Rights Act. That's incredible. And it represents a, a maturation and a growth of our movement. For myself, I started an organization called the Black Futures Lab and the Black to the Future Action Fund. We work specifically to make black communities powerful in politics. We conducted the largest survey of black people in America in 155 years. And we learned a lot about what we experience every day, but also what we wanna see for our futures. Right. We took that information and turned it into a black agenda for 2020, which literally is a legislative roadmap for how to make Black Lives Matter from City Hall to Congress. And the number one issues that people talked about, for example, were wages that were too low to support a family, uh, right. not having access to quality and affordable health care and housing. And so that's why we invest, we invest in our communities to bring forward the solutions that we all deserve. We that are closest to the pain know a lot about what it's going to take to shift it. Elections are about policies, and that's why we organize. We don't, I don't know that I ever want to have Joe Biden over for dinner, right? That's not the point of giving him my vote. The point is to make the kind of terrain where you can get the things that you need more easily and more accessibly. Right. And that's what we're organizing people around now. And I agree with you 100% that we've got to be clear about the things that we want. There's a lot of agendas out there, but not a lot of agendas that are actually rooted in organizing people who are being directly impacted by the issues that we're talking about. That has to be the new face of a movement for the 21st century. Well, I'll tell you this. I think your book is an amazing gateway into that world. Um, I was fascinated by it. I hope everybody else reads it because I think it's illuminating and it has concrete steps that I think just should be taken. So thank you so much for joining us on the show and um, congratulations on your journey. I, uh, I hope to see you again when you've made the HBO adaptation of Tanehasi Coates' book, Between the World and Me. That's going to be really exciting. Thank you so much for having me tonight. Anytime. Thank you so much for that, Alicia. Remember, the purpose of power is available now. All right, when we come back, Rashida Jones is on the show and you don't wanna miss it. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. So earlier today, I spoke with the multi-talented Rashida Jones. We talked about her new movie with Bill Murray and so much more. Rashida Jones, welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. <laughs> The Daily Social Distancing Show? Is the that Daily Social Distancing Show. Oh, I think it should be called The Daily Social Distancing. In the United States of America. <laughs> well, I, 
you know what? I can call it anything now. You, I can name it what we can call it for this. It can even be like, welcome to the Rashida Jones daily show, so, social distancing show. Social distance. Social, social, show, social on the shore. Welcome to either way. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I'm surprised you even have time to do this, to be honest. You, you are easily one of the most active people I have ever come across in my life. It'll be like, I turn on Netflix, oh, Rashida Jones is in Black AF. I'm like, oh, that's cool. Then it's like, oh, Rashida's also gonna be directing episodes of Black AF. Then you're like, wait, she's directing? Isn't she directing other things? They're like, yeah, sometimes director, she's directing like, whether it's ads or movies or other TV shows. And then it's like, oh, she's writing other. So for somebody like you, who's always doing something, how have you handled doing so much nothing during the pandemic? Well, the weird thing about me is, although I, I like to do things, it's not like I have to be with other people. And, and in fact, I sort of prefer being with less people. I'm not, I'm not like a, I'm not an extrovert. I might pose as an extrovert sometimes, but I really like time alone. So I, I miss dancing with my friends, I have to say. I miss right. like an occasional, like just like an epic night out. But you know, most nights aren't epic. They're just like, weird, perfunctory, social, uh, sometimes work-related things. So I'm happy to eliminate that level of going out. You know, I just miss like hugging my friends and dancing mainly. I think one of the things that people have always loved about you is um, the roles that you play. It, it always feels like there's a little bit of Rashida in them, but you've got, you've got, you know, you've got a range of characters and a range of personalities. But, but one thing people have always loved about you in your repertoire is, is your comedy. You know, whether it was Parks and Recreation or whether it was like Angie Tribeca, it's like, you know, you, you've, always, you've always had that, that charisma in the world of comedy. It's, you're a natural, that's, that's what you are. You've got a new movie uh, coming out now um, with uh, Bill Murray, one of the comedy legends of all time. And um, it's interesting because in this movie, you're playing more of a straight role. Was that easier or harder for you, especially when you're in scenes with Bill Murray? Well, I do tend to play the straight role. Like that's been, that has been my cross to bear for better, for worse, for the past, you know, 15 years of my career, I get to be the kind of sane, thoughtful, pragmatic friend or wife or girlfriend or daughter now of like the kind of zany person, you know, I'm, right. I'm the voice right. of reason, but you know, and I do feel like there's a certain skill set to that, but this is, yeah, this is the very, very pared down version of the straight man because I, you know, Bill plays my father, who is this larger than life, very charismatic figure who has a lot of opinions about men and women and relationships and monogamy and sex. And I just listen. I just take it and I listen and sometimes disagree with him. But it's it's no more than like, you know, an eye roll or a, a head nod. Um, but it's great. I mean, who doesn't want to sit and listen to Bill Murray theorize all day? I mean, that's just a joy as a human being, let alone an actor. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great premise as well. I, I love the idea of this daughter and, and father who are on this journey to try and catch the husband who they believe is cheating. Um, it's, it's an interesting way to connect. Like, it's an interesting bond to form between a daughter and, and her father. What did, you, what, did you, what did you like about the project? Well, I love Sophia Coppola, and, um, and I just think she's such a... A force. She's got. Her, she has such a unique aesthetic and perspective as a filmmaker, and I've always wanted to work with her and have worked with her a little bit. So you know, anything that she's doing, I'm interested in. But you know, I, I you also don't see movies like this very often. You don't see movies about adult women and their fathers. Like that's just a, like a weirdly un 
unexplored territory. And I just loved this idea of like, you know, that, that bond and be, being a daddy's girl myself, exploring like how that bond can sometimes be a bit of a hindrance in terms of like your personal development. Like I think this character has to learn how to not listen to her dad right. after these years of respecting him and listening to him. She's got to be like, you know what? I got it from here. It's my life. So, I, and I love that because I've never seen that before. Another thing we don't see often anymore is human beings um, socializing like crazy in New York City. And I'm not going to lie, it was triggering for me. I feel like you should put a warning out before the movie because I, I started watching and I was like, oh, on the rocks, this is going to be fantastic. Bill Murray, Rashida Jones, here we go. This is fun. And then all I saw was New York pre-pandemic. And for the first like 20 minutes of the movie, I'm like, why are these people hugging each other? Why are people, why, what are these people doing? It's is it weird. weird when you watch it back now yes. and you're like, it's a different world. It's a different world. Like I, I, anytime I watch anything now, I'm like, don't touch it. You, where's your mask? I mean, wash your hands. <laughs> but especially like with this movie, because we filmed it right before you probably couldn't really film anymore. I mean, we finished in July. It feels instantly nostalgic. Um, we're just, we're kind of like, didn't know how carefree we were actually, actually being <clears throat> by like, you know, traipsing the streets of New York city. Um, but yeah, it is strange to watch. And there was a couple of things actually that we had to talk about afterwards because Bill had this whole thing about how people wash their hands too much. And immediately it felt dated where, you know, we just couldn't say that anymore, you right. know, right. In, this, right. in this new era. So yeah, it's weird. It's very strange. Before I let you go, there is one thing I have been meaning to ask you for a very long time, and I just haven't had the opportunity. It is about an episode of Black Mirror that you wrote, Nosedive. And now I know a lot of people don't know episodes by the title, but it was an episode about a woman who lived in a society based around people judging other people and determining their success or failure in life. I remember watching it going, huh, of all the Black Mirror episodes, this one is the least realistic. I enjoyed it, but I was like, this is the least realistic. I was like, this won't happen. I think it's more likely that you're gonna have like the robot bees killing people. Ah, this seems a little bit crazy to me. And then social media really kicked into gear. And now we do live in a world where you're one tweet away from your career being taken away. You're, you're one moment away on Facebook from your family canceling. It's, it's become so extreme. Did you prophesy this based on things you were seeing or did you just think to yourself, this would be crazy, and then it happened? Well, I, I can't take the, any credit for that because Charlie Brooker, who created Black Mirror, is an island of genius, and I don't use that word lightly. So he really come. I mean, he's the he's the hub of all of these horrible, but but very realistic prophecies because so much of what he's written about has come true, sadly. But I did, you know, I, I begged him to work on the show and he brought this idea to me and, and Mike, Mike Schur, who created Parks and Recreation and The Good Place. And I, you know, I asked Mike to write it with, with me. And the truth is, I relate to this so much and felt like I could bring some perspective to this because as somebody who lives a little bit in the public eye, you sort of are in that world anyway. I mean, you right. are depending on somebody's feeling about you to have a career in some sense. But but also while we were writing it, uh, Charlie and Annabelle, our producer, were sending us articles about how they were already doing this rating system 
in other places in the world. Oh, yes, yes. I won't name, but but that was already happening while we were writing it. We were like, is it too, is it not going to be futuristic enough by the time it comes out? But yeah, now it really feels like we're so tied to people's perception of us in a social way that's going to actually impact our finances and our ability to move in the world. It's it's messed up. But I do feel like people are are now starting to really understand that they're stuck stuck in that cycle in a way they didn't before. Well, I, I, I watched the episode again and I was like, man, this is um a little too real for comfort. I feel like I owe this uh, this episode an apology. I yeah, I, I owe it an apology and I owe Rashida an apology, but I, I also owe Rashida gratitude. Thank you so much for joining me on the Rashida Jones Daily Show Show Social Distancing Show. Show 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 Distancing Show. And uh, I hope to see you again soon. <laughs> Thank you so much. Nice to see you. Take care. Well, that's our show for tonight. But before we go, I just wanted to remind you that we've partnered up with World Central Kitchen for their new Chefs for the Poles program. What they're doing is activating local food trucks, restaurants, and caterers, primarily owned by people of color. And what they're gonna be doing is serving food to people who are waiting in line to vote, especially in underserved communities where those lines have gotten so long. Until next week, stay safe out there, wear a mask, and remember, never say you're the least racist person in the room until you've asked everyone else how racist they are. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast. 